Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Two Guys in the Bible, a conversation on theology, culture, and God's Word. My name is Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me this morning. Um, I'm sorry to say that uh, Dylan was unable to join me because he is finishing up getting his house ready to move into. So, uh, you know, so thank you for your prayers and praise the Lord. Uh, his plan that he told me was that next weekend, I believe June 6th, he will be uh, moving and that'll be the move in day. So, um, definitely uh, prayers for that, uh, if you would, um, that the move goes smoothly, that everything gets done uh, in, a, in, a, in a timely fashion, and that uh, it's not too difficult for the family. So, I know that they're excited about that. And so, that's why Dylan is a bit out of pocket. Uh, and he and I have not really been able to uh, get together now. Uh, another uh, point of uh, administration is that uh, for the month of June, we'll be taking a break. Um, so this will be the last uh, recording, I think, for the uh, the podcast. I don't really want to uh, do much without Dylan, and I know that he'll be getting settled into his new house. Uh, so we'll be taking a break in June, probably coming back, in the month of July and August, we'll see how how things go. So, um, but uh, hopefully by then we'll be back into a new routine, a new groove, uh, but able and we'll be able to resume kind of normal operations. <clears throat> so, all right. With that said, today I want to kind of, I guess, since this is going to be the end of uh, season two, I want to end on a on a pretty uh, deep and and strong uh, study of scripture. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to cover a lot of different topics. Well, I wouldn't say a lot, maybe about three. Uh, first, I want to take a look at um, what it means to have human rights and human responsibilities. Then we're going to take a look about at uh, infectious diseases and some of the rules in Leviticus regarding quarantines. And then we're going to look finally at um, living in a risky world. So at, they, they all seem very separate topics, but uh, but trust me, I think they are related, and I want to kind of treat them all together uh, so that maybe, you know, I think it'll be better that way. So anyways, hopefully you'll find this helpful, this study, um, but I would encourage you, if you have a Bible with you, please, um, you know, get it and follow along. Um, you know, I, I just think that uh, that we need to be more um, more students of scripture, especially when it comes to difficult topics such as the coronavirus, which I will be touching on today as well. And I want to make sure I do that very carefully and responsibly. But to begin, let's talk a little bit about human rights. Now, I want to start with this topic because um, I'm sure many of you have heard that, uh, you know, human rights are kind of a, a big deal. Um, you got you got those who um, on maybe the right side of the political equation um, kind of talking about the, the importance of the human right to assemble or the right to uh, worship. Um, and then on the other side, perhaps the right to life or your neighbor's right to live and keeping your neighbor safe uh, so that, uh, you know, you don't spread the virus to, to them. Um, I, I think it's important, first of all, that we recognize that that human rights uh, come from God, and I'll I kind of I'll show that in a second here, 
well, where we kind of get that from Scripture. But to, to lay down a definition, when we ask ourselves, what, does it, what do we mean when we say human right? Okay, what is a right? Well, um, as I've thought through this, I, tried to, I think it, this might be a useful def- definition. It is something that you deserve to either have, keep, or acquire. So, for instance, um, if you don't have it, the society that you live in should do something to provide it. If you have it, the society should do something to protect it. And if someone violates your rights, something should be done by the society about it. And so really, when we say that we have a right to something, we're actually making a claim upon our neighbor. It is a, it's a claim that we're making on our neighbor for us. So, for instance, number one, you might say to your neighbor, you cannot take my food, water, or shelter. So, in that regard, you could say that you have a right to those things, to have those things. You could also say to your neighbor, you need to provide me with food, water, or shelter. Again, something that you deserve to have given to you. Uh, Number three, you need to allow me to acquire food, water, or shelter. Okay, that's the uh, attaining to something. And then fourth, you need to help and protect me if someone else tries to take my food, water, or shelter. So there's that intervention, that societal intervention. So at the end of the day, though, it is a claim that we make upon our neighbor, and that really is uh, the definition of a right. Okay, now, as Christians, we believe that God is the one who bestows human rights. Okay, all rights come from God. Now, so, and this makes sense because God is the one, <coughs> excuse me, who establishes legitimate claims upon our neighbors. So you can't just claim anything from your, from your neighbor. Okay, God sets the boundaries for what you are allowed to claim from your neighbor and how you're to treat your neighbor. Okay, so, you know, there's plenty of examples of this. We have uh, Genesis chapter 1, um, where we see that mankind is made in the image of God. Uh, chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so humans being made in the image of God um, is, is the grounds or the foundation for their rights, their claims that they can make upon each other, upon their neighbors. And we see uh, the right to life is explicitly set forth in Genesis chapter 9, where um, after the Noahic, uh, after the flood of Noah and the establishment of the Noahic covenant, we have God says this to Noah, um, chapter 9, verse, verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require, require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So there you have um, a direct tie from the right to life to the image of God. Okay, It's because man is made in the image of God 
that you are that that we are not to murder our fellow human being and if we do we forfeit our right to life now this this verse right there genesis 9 6 i believe uh is what connects rights with responsibilities and a lot of times and i i think this is one weakness in um our our constitution and in the western concept of human rights now don't get me wrong this it's you know the rights that we have in our in our u.s constitution uh the the rights espoused by our founding fathers those are all grounded in the biblical worldview they are a very christian okay but the difficulty is that a lot of rights were enumerated but no responsibilities were really spoken of or at least responsibilities were not put uh on the same on the same plane or in the same level of the rights and maybe there's a good reason for that i mean you you could very well have you know and there at that time um they were they had a general sense of responsibility in their culture and uh, a lack of responsibility wasn't so much the the problem of the day but a trampling of rights was more of the problem okay and so that's why they speak more about rights but at the end of the day um the bible is very clear there are rights and all rights come with responsibilities because if if your right is a claim that you make upon your neighbor well then your responsibility is simply the reverse it's your neighbor's claim upon you okay it's the proper use of your rights the proper claim of your rights and god is the one who sets the domain or limits for each and again going back to the right to life you have a right to life you are not to be murdered but if you kill people if you murder people uh genesis is very clear you forfeit your right to life you are to be put to death um lawfully by the civil government okay so you have a right to life but you have a responsibility to guard the life of your neighbor now again this is extremely important that it is god who sets the sets the limits for rights and responsibilities and that they come from god and not from man the reason for this is that if rights come from humans then they can change they can fluctuate they can be added or taken away based on just a whim just on the emotional uh, uh you know to and fro of you know, emotional ups and downs of society right and um that being said if if responsibilities come from man they can become very burdensome or tyrannical right so you you have you know hints of this playing out with the pharisees where they would place extra burdens um if you would extra responsibilities <clears throat> on the people and give them a heavy load that they could not bear and it became quite oppressive and quite tyrannical but at the same time if mankind can just make whatever rights they want they can also take those away okay you know if if you know cuz cuz at the end of the day you know job has it correct the lord giveth and the lord taketh away blessed be the name of the lord but you don't want a situation where man giveth and man taketh away 
blessed be the name of the man. You don't want that. That's bad. And um, sadly, too many countries throughout human history, too many nations have um, seen rights as man-given uh, or given by the king as opposed to given by God and protected by the king. So, anyways. <clears throat> um, we already talked about the right to life is forfeit if you cross the line. Uh, we see this in Genesis 9. You see this in, uh, you know, in the rest of the laws and, and, and numbers and Exodus and Deuteronomy. Um, but we see this, um, this, this balance between rights and responsibilities in other areas. So, for example, we have the right to worship, right? Freedom to assemble, freedom to worship. Well, you can't worship any way you choose. So there are some ancient cults. Um, you could even look at some of the uh, cults of, of the Aztec or Incans. They practiced human sacrifice and cannibalism. So I don't think that our right to worship um, allows us to just sacrifice our neighbors and cut their hearts out and you know eat our neighbor um, you know in the name of religious worship, right? So so no right is absolute in that sense. Same thing for right to speech, right? Freedom of speech is a freedom, but it's very clear that bearing false witness um, is a violation of God's commandments. And in scripture, we see that if a person is a false witness, if they falsely accuse somebody um, to try to get them in trouble, to, to try to get them killed or to take their property, um, if it's found out that the witness was false purposefully, then the witness gets punished with the punishment that they tried to get for the innocent party, right? Um, so lying under oath or bearing false witness is not allowed. <clears throat> Excuse me. So freedom of speech is not absolute. Now, this is where we're going to get into um, how this relates to uh, uh, infectious diseases such as you know, the Rona. Okay. So let's take a, let's talk about freedom of movement or freedom of assembly. We would say, our founding fathers would say, and I would agree that God has given humans the right to move and to assemble. Okay. So in general, people can go where they please in general. Okay. They can gather together when they please in general. Now, there are some restrictions upon that. Now, in Scripture, if you try to look through it, trespassing is not really so much an issue as stealing was. So, in the Bible, there were boundaries. Um, the Scripture talks about um, in, in Deuteronomy 19 that landmarks are to be respected. You're not to move your neighbor's landmark. Now, again, the issue is not so much trespassing. As it is stealing, you know, a person might move the landmark to claim that they have more land and that they just took their land from their neighbor. Um, and in Deuteronomy 23, again, the issue is not so much trespassing as it is stealing because Deuteronomy 23 allows for um, the sojourner and the stranger to walk through your field and to take some food. So here's what it says. Uh, verse 24, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. 
If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So why is that there? Well, uh, in, in ancient Israel, they didn't have that many roads. Um, there weren't that many ways to get from one place to the other. So quite often you would be walking um, and you would probably be going through someone's field. And scripture is clear. If you're walking and the average person was walking, um, some of the wealthier people could have mules or donkeys um, or perhaps even horses, which would be the wealthy folks. Um, But for the most part, you'd be walking, you would get hungry. And scripture says, God says, you are allowed to to pick from the vineyard, to eat, to pick from the heads of grain, and to eat, basically get a snack uh, while you're walking through your neighbor's field, but you're not allowed to harvest. So, the you know, basically stealing from your neighbor. You can't, you can't store the food in your bag. You can't take a sickle to the grain. Um, so, so, but the assumption here is that you are, you're able to move freely. And your neighbor... You know, the person who owns the property isn't supposed to, you know, drive you off his land, you know, you know, sick the dogs on you and make you leave. No, there's an, there's an understanding that people should be allowed to move from one place to, to the other. They can transit through property um, without, without um, expecting to be, you know, punished, right, or to be driven off. So... Um, a good a good modern example of this is sidewalks. So I have a sidewalk out in my front of my property. It's on my property line. It's my responsibility. I have to maintain the sidewalk, but I also can't just you know start screaming at my front door when I see people walking on my sidewalk and start yelling at them to get off my property. That would be inappropriate. So um, so God allows for freedom of movement. Um, and another very radical law you see in Deuteronomy, is the laws concerning escaped slaves. So in Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 through 16, here's what it says. You shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. So here you have a law where if a slave escapes from his master, and the assumption here obviously is that the master is pretty abusive, and or, you know the slave is, is is obviously clearly in danger, wants to escape. This is not a good situation for him to be in. Well, if he escapes, you're not to send him back, and you're all, you're to allow that slave to live in any one of the towns of Israel, wherever he chooses. So there's a freedom of movement there that God allows, and. As far as assembly goes, I mean, you can look throughout all the God's law. It's very clear. There were plenty of assemblies. Some of them are mandatory. There were feasts. There were Sabbaths, uh, gathering together of the people. Some assemblies could be called um, if they needed to be called for, you know, making decisions or for perhaps even punishing people for sin, uh, for certain crimes. So the point is, is that there was very much freedom of movement and assembly. But at the same time, there were responsibilities. So, for instance, <clears throat> in Exodus 22, there's a law against uh, breaking into a man's house, which is pretty obvious, um, and that uh, there's no penalty if, if the thief is, 
is uh, is killed at night. So here's what it says in verse twenty, uh, chapter twenty two, verse two of Exodus: If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt on him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. So if it's nighttime and someone breaks into your home, even if they haven't stolen anything yet, I mean, the assumption is if someone is breaking into your home at night, they're not there for good reasons. You are allowed to defend your home. They can't just walk into your house at night without permission. Okay. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. And then there's another law though, that's, that's very interesting. And that's in numbers chapter 35. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's pretty long, but it has to do with cities of refuge. And the idea here was that if you committed manslaughter, you you accidentally killed somebody, maybe it was due to some negligence, but you weren't you had no hatred in your heart for them. Um, you were allowed to flee to a designated city for refuge. And if you got to the city, okay, the congregation will judge. Uh, the congregation of that city, the elders in the congregation will judge between um, the manslayer, you, and the avenger of blood, so the closest um, male relative of the victim. And the congregation, this is verse 25, shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. Okay? And the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge, to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest. Who, has, who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood, for he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. So, so again, the idea here is that if you're guilty of manslaughter and you flee to the city of refuge, and the congregation, congregation finds you not guilty of murder, maybe just manslaughter, um, you're still restricted in your movement. You're not to leave until the high priest dies. And if you do leave, uh, and the avenger of blood finds you and kills you, he doesn't get in trouble for it. So, so there are limitations to freedom of movement and assembly. Now, the one I really want to get to now and spend some time on has to do with infectious diseases. So, this is going to be very relevant to what we talk about today. Does God provide restrictions on, on his people moving and assembling during outbreaks of plague or disease and pestilence? <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> I think it's pretty obvious. If anyone, from anyone who's read Leviticus, there are several chapters um, that uh, talk about this, and we're going to get into them. But I want to first say that it primarily, these, these issues about being clean or unclean and about quarantining, they primarily have to do with being clean is before God, okay? And they secondarily have to do with protecting the rest of God's people. But this is where <clears throat> loving God and loving neighbor are so closely connected. It's, it's, it's hard to say that the laws regarding um, quarantining of sick people, um, you know, they're only about spiritual 
cleanliness for worship. It's not true. It's more than that. But you can't also just say it's all about protecting the, the community. It's not just that either. Um, and let me give you an example as to why it's not that. It's why it's both, why it's a both and situation. Numbers chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the middle of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. So here's the key. God says, I don't want you to defile your camp. And oh, by the way, I dwell in the middle of your camp. And, you know, with God being in the midst of his people, his people are to be a holy people, a clean people. And so there's a connection, though, between um, being clean before God and not defiling the camp, the community. So, so they, they both go hand in hand. All right, so that being said, when you go to Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, those two chapters are entirely devoted to um, dealing with infectious diseases and how they are to be restored. And it would take me quite a long time and might be a little repetitive if I read all of them just from beginning to end. So I encourage you, read through them carefully. Um, there's some great wisdom here, but I'm just going to lay out some of the key points what we see here um, in, in the rules given to the people of Israel is that the disease is supposed to be investigated by the ruling authorities. So um, if a person has any symptoms, they are to come to the priest and the priest is going to investigate to see whether it is truly an infectious disease, a leprous disease, or if it's something else. All right. Now, um, what we see here, though, is that if it is an infectious disease, that person is going to get an initial seven-day quarantine. So let me read uh, a section here that talks about this. Uh, okay. Uh, Leviticus 13, um, starting in verse 5, and the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. Oh, well, let me go a little bit earlier. earlier. Verse 4. But if the spot is white in, in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up another seven days. So here's how it works. Best case scenario you, you have an infection, you come to the priest, he sets you, he isolates you for seven days. Okay, he comes and checks on you on the seventh day. If the thing is getting better, if the symptoms are declining and it seems like you're recovering, you get another seven-day quarantine. So a total of 14-day quarantine. Sounds kind of similar to what we're doing today with regards to COVID-19, but we'll talk more about that later. 14-day quarantine at a minimum is what you get. Now, of course, if things 
don't get better. The assumption here is that you're not getting out. You're not, you're not leaving the quarantine until things get better. But there is there are some more words in here about chronic illnesses. So illnesses that keep coming back or that never really go away. Now, after, after the 14 days, the person is pronounced clean. But here's the interesting thing. It's not done yet. All right? Because if a person, now when a person after the 14th day becomes declared clean, here's what has to happen. Um, the priest then um, makes an offering. Uh, it involves birds um, and involves hyssop and dipping and, and oil and things like that. But here's what happens. And he, so this is just this chapter 14, verse 8. And he should, who and he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. After that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent for seven days. And on the seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard, and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair, and he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body, and he shall be clean. So think about this. After your 14-day period of quarantine, the priest declares you clean, you can come back to the camp. You have to wash your clothing and your body and shave off all your hair, which we can talk more about how that plays into things. I mean, you have a lot of issues with, with lice and other you know, creatures. And there's also um, uh, uh, the sense of renewal of shaving off your head. Um, people did it uh, uh, during uh, times of mourning. So you have Job who shaved off his head after um, he... Um, got infected, um, but you also have kind of like the sense of renewal. I'm shaving everything off. It's gonna, it's gonna grow back. I'm washing myself. I'm clean. I'm getting new clothes. Um, so, so you have that picture uh, uh, there. But um, ultimately, you wash yourself, and you're not allowed to go back in your tent though. So there's still another seven days where you're being observed, and finally, after it's all over. You wash again, washing your clothes again, and then you're fully reinstituted back into society. So it was a three-week process. <clears throat> now, so that has to do with diseases that would um, pop up every now and then and that were infectious. But some chronic diseases don't get quarantined, Okay. Um, there, are, there are some sections where if a person has a chronic illness, they don't get a quarantine, but they do get basically kicked out of the camp um, until further notice, essentially. Um, and so that's where you have, you have in the New Testament, you know, there's, there's lepers, there's people that are living outside of society and almost indefinitely. And that would have been the case if you had a disease that kept, that kept reoccurring or that never went away you wouldn't just stay in quarantine forever. Um, you know, that would, it would be nearly impossible to keep you, you know, fed and clothed in quarantine indefinitely. You would have to go provide for yourself. You'd have to go um, out there, out into the world, but you had to live outside of the camp. Um, and only when the disease finally uh, went away, would you, would you then go to the priest and ask him to, um, to cleanse you. So 
Um, anyways, there are some other things that we see in Leviticus 13 and 14. Um, it has to do with, with scars. So uh, we have some sections where um, if the disease is, uh, is a scar, that person's not unclean. So uh, let me give an example. Some diseases leave scars or marks permanently. Okay, so smallpox leaves scars. Um, per Leviticus, if the person, if there's, fre- if there's fresh symptoms, and I think it talks about, um, you know, raw skin. If there's fresh, if there's raw flesh, it is unclean. That person needs to be treated as unclean. But if not, it's just a, it's just a, a scab or a scar. Um, it's not unclean. It's clean. That's in Leviticus 13, uh, verse 23. And if the spot remains in one place and does not spread, it is the scar of the boil. And the, pre- and the priest shall pronounce him clean. So again, um, there's, a, there's a differentiation made between this is evidence of infectiousness and this is evidence um, of not infectious. It's just kind of long-term damage or permanent scarring done by the disease. Now, so again, to kind of uh, summarize, uh, the quarantines are 14 days long. The priest is checking halfway through. Um, um, if they come back out into, you know, into rejoining society, they get one more week of observation and they can fully recover or fully be included after um, the third week. Um, if a person is, <coughs> excuse me, is unclean and is outside the camp, okay, if they're declared unclean and infectious by the priest, scripture is very clear. They are to wear torn clothes. They are to um, not um, uh, have their hair done. Their hair is to be kept unkempt. They're to cover their mouth uh, and their lip with their hand or, or a cloth and to shout out to everyone that they are unclean. So they would go around saying, unclean, unclean. Now, the principle here, though, is that the people of Israel who were infectious, they were supposed to let others know by sight and sound that they were infectious and that they should be avoided. Okay? Um, and they would live outside the camp or in quarantine until the disease was gone. Now, Kind of on, a, on an interesting note, like I mentioned before, when they recovered from their illness, they would have to wash their clothes and their body, but then sacrifices would be made. But here's the neat thing about um, these sacrifices. You know, in some of the pagan cults, um, if you were sick, you would bring your sacrifice to the priest right away, and he would, you know, kill a chicken or kill an animal to try to make you healthy, right? So it, it would almost be like, I have to appease the gods. And if I appease the gods and offer a sacrifice, then I will be healed. But that's actually not the case here in in the Old Testament. The sacrifice was only made after the person was declared clean. So it was a sin offering and a burnt offering, but it was after the fact. It was after everything was over and God had brought cleanliness cleanliness to the person, cleansing to the person. So it's kind of neat. You don't try to make God heal you by sacrificing to him. The sacrifice is done after, um, after the obedience, after the cleansing takes place. So now 
What about rules for buildings and objects? Well, there's, there's quarantine rules for, um, for geographic locations too in, in Scripture. And that's more Leviticus. Um, well, there's Leviticus 13 talks about clothing that is infected if garments have um, some kind of disease on them. Um, again, the priest is to check the garment um, and, and basically put the garment in quarantine for seven days. And if there's no improvement, that item is to be burned. If it is improving, okay, evidence of disease is, is kind of fading, then the priest is to wash the garment and wait another seven days, okay? And after the 14th day, so again, a 14-day quarantine, if the garment, if the cloth still appears to have a disease on it, it's burned. But if the diseased section is faded almost completely, the priest can tear that part out and washes the rest of the garment a second time, and then it's good to go. You can use that, that garment again. But interestingly, if the disease comes back, the item is to be burned. So, you know, the basically, you know, your cloak or your, your garment, you get one shot at, at uh, recovering it. And if it if the disease comes back, it gets burned. Now, what about houses? Well, that's again Leviticus chapter 14. Um, here's, we have some rules here. Uh, when you come into the land of Canaan, uh, if, I, if I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession, then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest. Okay. Um, then the priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease lest all that is in the house be declared unclean. So the idea here is that once there's some kind of evidence of a disease in a house, priest gets told, so the ruling authorities get informed, and everyone needs to leave the house. If you don't, when the priest arrives, you're unclean. Everything in the house is declared unclean, including people who are in it. <clears throat> now, if he sees that there's evidence of disease in the house, something infectious is going on there, the house is to be shut up and isolated for seven days. If after seven days, um, the priest goes back in and those pieces of the house, I guess those bricks, those, those walls, those furniture, whatever, those pieces are to be removed and to be replaced by fresh you know, stone, masonry, plaster, everything. <clears throat> the bad pieces are to be thrown away into a special designated place, basically a toxic waste dump. And if the disease does not come back, the house is clean. If the disease comes back, the building is to be destroyed completely, demolished, torn down. Now, while the, while the building is under quarantine, anyone who enters the house is unclean until evening. Um, anyone who eats in the house or sleeps in the house has to wash their clothing. Okay, so what do we what do we see in all these in all these things here? Well, we see some very wise practices regarding sanitation. So you have quarantining of the sick, those who have symptoms. You have investigation, testing testing for disease, infectious disease. You have um, quarantining objects and locations, buildings that have the disease in them. Um, those who 
those who enter those locations um, have to sanitize their clothing. Okay. So just think about like wearing, you know, PPE, right? So um, these are some things that we have some great principles that we can apply and should apply to the modern era. Now, there are some points I want to, uh, to consider before we go into, you know, what about today? What about COVID-19, right? Because, you know, that's, that's it's, it's so novel, so new. You know, does God's word even apply? Well, I want to point out, first of all, that um, diseases that were infectious without symptoms have always existed, okay? So just for instance, you know, HIV. HIV can be transmitted and you don't have any symptoms if you had it. But even something as simple as the flu um, has asymptomatic transmissions. Um, I just read an article from Oxford. Um, It's dated back in 2017, so definitely before coronavirus. And it talks about how a study was done in Hong Kong um, over six years where about about 10% of, of cases of influenza were originated from asymptomatic, okay? So, um, so basically, you know, it's a small percentage, yeah, but people who had no symptoms still spread the virus, okay? About 10% in this study. Now, so there's always been the case that you could have no symptoms and infect other people. But it is also the case that, uh, and this makes sense, that when there are no symptoms, transmission is less likely. Now, why is that? Well, because if there's not many symptoms, if there's not that much bacteria or, or viral particles in your body, um, on the one hand, there's probably, you know, there's not that many of them in your body, so you're not sending that much out into the world. But on the other hand, um, if you're not coughing, sneezing, or oozing, you know, you got spots or, you know, you know, infectious oozing diseases from your skin, if you're not coughing, sneezing, or oozing, um, you're less likely to send things, send particles or viruses or bacteria um, out into the air or into other, other people. So even if you have it, um, you're simply less likely. You're not touching your face as much. You're not blowing your nose. You're not wiping your nose on, you know, with your hand or your sleeve. Um, you know, you're not, you're not coughing into your hand or your elbow. So it's just the transmission is just logically less likely. It can still happen. And it's been like this since the dawn of time. Okay. Now, God in his word is providing the people of Israel with a good balance. Quarantining the healthy would be a problem. God quarantines the sick and those who are um, confirmed to have been infected or uh, with, with the disease in Scripture. And why is that important? Well, because God has designed us. We are creatures that are supposed to work. We're economic creatures, and we're also social creatures. And if you were to... If God were to tell Israel that anytime there's a disease that comes up, every single person is to stay in their home for two weeks, that would cause more damage than it necessarily helps, okay? The economic and the social damage. 
and it would have limited effectiveness. Okay, the, 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 cost, the cost would be more than the benefit in that case. Now, um, at the same time, God does provide restrictions. Okay, if there were to be no restrictions, it would cause way too much damage if a person was infectious and spreading around diseases. So you, but, and, but that's why God gives a 14-day quarantine along with washing of your body um, and your clothing, isolating the sick from the healthy, and a gradual return to full activity over the course of three weeks. That is beautiful wisdom. And it's ironic that even today, the quarantine for COVID-19 is 14 days. Now, is that just a coincidence or what? I don't know. But I do think that God has given great wisdom to us in his word. <clears throat> so let's apply this today. You take some of these, this is, you know, ignoring some of the ancient language, leprosy, you know, white, whiteness on the skin, you know, oozing, things like that, even the priest. What do you see in this? Testing is key. The priest would test the people of Israel who were suspected of having the sickness. Confirmation of that disease, whether through symptoms or through testing, would determine how you react. You quarantine the sick. Those with symptoms or confirmed positive would be isolated, placed on 14-day quarantine while being monitored. <clears throat> Excuse me. A gradual release. Only those with diminishing symptoms after 14 days would be released. Their clothing and any items that they touched would have to be sanitized. They would be observed for another week after going back into society to confirm their status. You would protect others because those who interacted with the sick would have to sanitize themselves and their clothing once they are finished their work. So just think of medical healthcare professionals that are dealing with the, the sick people um, every day. They would have to wash themselves, wash their clothing. Specific areas of outbreak, not entire countries or entire you know, land masses or states, but like houses, okay, perhaps even neighborhoods, would be locked down with no entry allowed except for essential personnel and medical workers. And those who enter into those areas would be unclean and would have to sanitize themselves and their clothing before coming out. Um, the healthy people should have a chance to leave an area of outbreak. So basically, it's kind of a warning, right? You know, one person gets confirmed case. You're like, everybody, you need to, I'm, I'm coming right now to investigate. You need to all, if you're healthy, you leave. But if I get there and I confirm it's sickness, everyone's locked down in that neighborhood or in that house, right? Um, so when the medical personnel arrive, all persons who are still there are assumed as being unclean. Okay, but here's the interesting thing. Just because you are assumed to be unclean doesn't mean that you get quarantined but it does mean that you must sanitize yourself and your clothing before you are let out. And if you develop symptoms or get tested positive, you go into a 14-day quarantine. And again, equipment and clothing used by the sick should be sanitized. Equipment and clothing that enters into a place of sickness, like a hospital, should be sanitized upon leaving. And so these principles would be applicable, very much so, and we're using most of them 
with regards to this COVID-19 crisis. So at the end of the day, you have, on the one hand, the right of people to assemble and to move, but the responsibility to do so wisely and to put in place healthy and biblical quarantines. And I guess the biggest problem that I see going on in our culture today is the quarantining of the healthy, which um, I, I, you just don't see that in Scripture. Now, I want to be careful, though, because there are going to be some uh, counter-arguments to, uh, to this. So, so let, me kind of, let me kind of address those. Someone might say, well, hindsight is 2020, right? Okay, so now we know more. Well, that might be true. It's, it always is, right? Um, you know, data, models, predictions are always limited. You know, just think of a weather forecast. You know, can the, can the weatherman predict it 10 days out? He can kind of guess, but, but there are millions of variables, right? There's always, you know, fog and friction of war. There's always the unknown. And, and, and that's why you always need starting principles, Okay, but that's why God gives us his word. You need guidance. You need foundational principles by which you approach any situation or difficulty. And God's word provides us with that wisdom. Um, now, someone might also say, well, but this is the new corona. This is the novel coronavirus. Nothing like this has ever been seen before. Eh. Well, first of all, there have always been diseases that can spread without symptoms. I mean, just, you, you can do, do the research. Um, there always has been. Now, maybe the coronavirus is more infectious, even without symptoms. Maybe so. But there's always been the risk that diseases can spread without symptoms. There have always been diseases that kill, okay? And then keep in mind, the plagues and diseases in Scripture were typically more lethal than what we're facing today. At the end, in all honesty, now let's be fair. <clears throat> now, someone might say, but yes, <clears throat> COVID-19 is very deadly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, is it any more deadly than the diseases faced in the ancient Near East? I mean, just consider the fact that the people in Israel, they had no hand sanitizer. They had no readily available soap. There was, there was a primitive form of soap, but it wouldn't have been readily available you know, throughout everywhere. Uh, they didn't have running water or plumbing in many of their homes, um, but they still had to wash, by the way. Washing was very key. They didn't have antibiotics, and they had no vaccines, and they had regular interaction with animals, okay? Now, someone might say, well, but the population density was way less, and that's true, but if you went to the cities or the towns, the marketplace would have been filled with animals and people, live animals, you know, wet markets, right? And, 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 and people who are just milling about their day. And again, no hand sanitizer, very little bathing um, uh, on a regular basis, and no antibiotics and no vaccines. That's kind of a big deal. And yet God still gives them these balanced rules. I mean, you would almost think that um, since diseases were way more deadly, okay, um, and there weren't that many people back then, so, you know, keeping your people alive is kind of important. But even then, God does not say, lock down the whole society, 
no one leaves for 14 days, even if you're healthy. He doesn't do that. He has, he still allows for this balance for the people of Israel to live in, okay? So we need to keep that in mind before we start suggesting that we should kind of um, discard or deviate from God's word. Now, someone might also say, well, Eric, um, that was for the people of Israel. We live in the, you know, that's outdated. We live in the New Testament, New Covenant. Well, just keep in mind that uh, that's not a fair reading of Scripture. Um, just to give a quick example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, um, the Apostle Paul, he's talking about um, churches paying their ministers. And here's what he says. Um, or is it only, this is chapter 9, verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So, what's Paul saying there? Paul is basically saying, you should pay your ministers. Those who are dedicated to preaching the word of God as pastors, elders, and ministers should have their livelihoods supplied by the people of God. And Paul quotes from a law in Deuteronomy about muzzling oxen. And he asks the question, is that law just about oxen? Is that what God cares about? No. He actually says it was written for our sake. Our as in New Covenant, New Testament, people of God. God's law is very much for us today. We just have to apply it as Christians. That's all. We don't have, to, so we have to just do that properly. But so we got to keep in mind, just because it's in Leviticus doesn't mean it's, it's just, you know, no longer matters and we can just discard it and go with human wisdom. No, God has given us wisdom. Let's use that wisdom properly. Now, I did, you know, again, I am teachable on this and there's going to be more information that comes out. But at the end of the day, um, is, is COVID-19 more deadly than some of the ancient um, Near Eastern plagues and diseases? I think it would be a stretch to say that it is. Um, it is more deadly than the flu, that's for sure. Um, at least twice as deadly. But um, I, uh, Here's an article from, uh, from the CDC, okay, from the CDC website. You can go there right now about pandemic planning scenarios. And right now, their current scenario, their current best estimate um, as of the end of April, basically, the beginning of May, is that COVID-19 has about a 0.4% fatality rate. So if you basically include all the people who are asymptomatic and all the people who had very mild symptoms, and then all the people that had lots of symptoms or who got tested positive, you know, if you add everyone together who probably had the disease or has it. And then you compare that with the number of deaths. It ends up being about 0.4%. So about so basically 0.4% of everyone who gets the disease dies. And the flu is about point, 
you know, 1% to 0.2%. So COVID-19 is certainly, at least per the CDC, you know, two to four times more deadly than the flu, but it's still 0.4%. It ain't like 50% bubonic plague or some of the, some of the more ancient plagues that killed, you know, half the population of, of the entire society. So, you know, we got to be careful when we start saying that um, it's so deadly, we have to do things differently than what God's law commanded for the people of Israel. I would be careful before I start saying that God's law is not wise enough, smart enough, or good enough, um, or proper enough for a disease that has 0.4% fatality. Just, just keep that in mind. Okay, now that being said, how then shall we live? When This is the last part I want to get to, and this has to do with living in a risky world. Because at the end of the day, a lot of people will say, well, we don't follow God's law because it's too risky. Okay, we can't just let the healthy people um, or the people without symptoms run amok because it would just it would just kill our neighbor. You know, you can't leave your house because it will kill grandma. All right. First of all, be that is not a helpful that is not a helpful statement to make because I mean, yeah, would you be saying then that God's law is killing grandma? Because God's law certainly doesn't say quarantine the healthy. So keep that in mind. I mean, if you're gonna accuse um, God's people today of, of, of killing grandma by leaving their houses, then, then that basically means the people of Israel were also taking unnecessary risks if they left their houses and they were healthy during the middle of some kind of infectious outbreak. So with a disease like COVID as part of our daily life, how should we live? Well, <clears throat> life always has a risk, right? Every decision that you make has risk. And I'm just going to throw this out there. I, I know this is a separate topic altogether, but just to give you an example, 1,200 people in Pennsylvania die every year from car accidents, and 40,000 Americans die every year because of car accidents. So just, just keep that in mind um, as you think about how often you drive without even thinking about those numbers. And a lot of us will have to admit we don't run the numbers or do the calculations when we get in our cars. Maybe we should, but we typically don't. And um, that risk of driving increases when at nighttime, in the rain, in fog, and in snow and ice, right? And it gets worse if you're distracted, you know, fiddling with the radio, texting on your phone, talking to the person next to you, getting in an argument with your family in the car, um, all those things, drinking, you know, all those things adds risk. And every decision that you make to leave your home puts yourself and others at risk. There's always some percentage. Who knows what it is? You know, you could, you could, you could die tripping on the sidewalk outside. Um, you could be walking on the sidewalk and a car, a car jumps the curb and hits you, right? I mean, and any of these things could happen, right? But the thing is, we live in a fallen world, and it's because of Adam. So just blame him, right? But here's the thing. Think about the, think about the curses that God gave us in the Garden of Eden. Thorns and thistles, working for the, sweat of, um, for the food from, by the sweat of our brow, 
uh, bearing of children causing pain. Um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the serpent will, will bite the heel and, and, um, and, will, and the man, man will crush the head of the serpent, right? So think about this. Farming includes the risk of getting pricked by thorns. Um, bearing children brings the risk of death for both the mother and the child. Um, entering the wilderness, taking dominion of the sea, of the air, and of the land brings with it the risks of pain and death. And finally, fighting the serpent risks getting bitten on the heel. So just ponder that for a second. Fighting the serpent brings with it the risk of getting bitten. And so there's going to be conflict. There's going to be risk. There's going to be pain and, and, and suffering in this world. And you simply cannot avoid it. Um, you know, so most of the time we don't even think about it. We don't even think about the fact that if we go get ice cream, if we go driving in our car just to get ice cream, we're putting ourselves at risk. We're putting our neighbor at risk. Is that really worth it just to go get some ice cream or to go to a movie theater to see a movie, especially when it's raining outside at night when people usually go see movies? Now, why would you do that? What a risk just to get entertained. Just, just to, why, what kind of a risk is that? Now, but at the end of the day, we don't, we don't crunch those numbers, but we do it without even thinking. Um, and so, um, so when we, when we answer the question, well, does, does loving your neighbor mean taking zero risk? I don't think it does. Loving your neighbor does not mean taking zero risk for yourself or for your neighbor. Loving your neighbor means what God's law says it means. Okay. And God has saw, has seen fit to say, in the book of Leviticus to God's people of Israel, this is what it means to love your neighbor. You don't have to live in fear in your house just because your neighbor gets sick. If you have no sickness, if you were not exposed, you don't have to stay in your house. Okay, now that's what God says in the Bible. And I think we should very much keep that in mind. And he gave that to a world that had no antibiotics, no vaccines, no hand sanitizer. No PPE, except for maybe your cloak, right? Or your turban. Um, so staying in your house and making your neighbor bring you stuff is not loving. I mean, just think about that, right? Like those of us who are staying in our houses, we still have to live. So who's going to give us the food? Well, we order it. It gets delivered. Everything gets sent to us by these various people that we hire as temporary servants. Is it fair that we should make them take all the risk and not us? Is that loving your neighbor when your neighbor takes all the risks and not you? Doesn't seem like it, right? Um, and in fact, it gets even worse if you consider the fact that, well, I'm just going to stay in my house and the government will provide me with, with money or with food. You know, we need to be safe. So, you know, the government can provide um, emergency funds and everything. Okay, that's fine. But who's going to bring you the food? If you say the government will, well, what are they going to do? They're just going to pay somebody else to do it. They're going to hire some other neighbor, some other stranger, some other worker to do the dirty work. Someone has to take the risk. For anyone in this world to live, to eat, drink, have food, shelter, clothing, water, somebody has to take the risk. And at the end of the day, who's going to do it? 
And is it fair that that person should bear all the risk and not us? So again, God's law provides great balance um, for, for these things. So again, reasonable safety measures are fine. God's law provides for that. Building a parapet around your roof, that's, that's a safety measure. Uh, and that's very applicable for things like um, uh, fences around swimming pools. Seatbelts and airbags are very reasonable safety measures. Turn signals, right? Bumpers, okay? Um, Anti-lock brakes. But why don't all of us wear NASCAR-style helmets and gear? Think about this. If every single person wore a NASCAR-style helmet and outfit every time they drove, I think we could reduce um, vehicular deaths by a huge percentage. We could save lives, at least our own life, by wearing that gear, that PPE for driving. Why don't we do that? Why don't we force that to happen? Because of a variety of reasons. The cost, um, uh, our own desire not to be uncomfortable, perhaps, um, inconvenience. But at the end of the day, we choose not to live that way. If you want to go buy a NASCAR helmet, you certainly can. And wear it while you're driving, certainly can, just like you can wear a mask while you're driving. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, there is a limit to the amount of, there is an extreme, there's an extreme stance that a person could take with regards to safety. And I think we see this in Proverbs 22, 13. So in that proverb, which is one of my favorite, by the way, because it's, it's kind of amusing. Um, it says this, <laughs> the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Now just, just chew on that verse for a second. Chew on that proverb. It talks about the sluggard or the lazy person. And the person doesn't want to go outside because they're afraid of a lion in the streets. So we have this person who's looking for an excuse not to work. Okay, fair enough. But are they being completely ridiculous? Eh, maybe. But is it possible that there are lions would be outside? Yeah, sure it is. And that day, there were wild animals. There could be lions outside. And I, I, I can think it, it's perfectly conceivable that a person who's very full of fear and anxiety would, um, would, in his mind, say, it's too dangerous out there. It is too dangerous. I am not going outside. I am not going to work. I just don't feel safe, right? Um, and you want to be careful about that. We don't want to be like the sluggard who is looking for an excuse to stay home and to stay safe, right? Um, and, um, you know, I'm not trying to say that being safe is wrong. We should want to be safe within reason, but there is, um, there is certainly in Scripture, a, a, uh, there is that sense that you can have too much anxiety and too much fear. Um, and I kind of want to end talking about that. Um, we don't want to live in fear. Um, and we want to use God's word as a guide, but just consider the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Here's what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body. What will you put on? For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. 
of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So just think about that for a second. Now, imagine if Jesus were here today in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic, and he were to speak those words. How do you think our culture would react to him? Would they accuse him of hating his grandmother, of killing his neighbor, of not loving his neighbor, of being too flippant, of being too risky? I don't know. I kind of wonder about that one. Now, some might say, well, that's not applicable. That has to do with eating and clothing and, and things like that. Now, I think it's very applicable because Jesus is addressing the very basic human needs of people in that day. People in that day, and he even says that the nations are worried about their clothing and their food and their drink and everything else, right? That's, that's the basic needs of life. That's what they're worried about. Um, and I think that would include your physical well-being. Your physical well-being is included in all of those things. And that includes your, your safety, your sicknesses, your health. Um, so at the end of the day, I think, I think that Jesus's words are very applicable. I think that what we see happening in our culture is this is panic. This is fear. I mean, ask yourself, what would fear look like? What does it look like to not trust God? Okay. Cause Jesus says not to be worried and not to have anxiety and to trust God. Okay. So, so, so we have to ask that question. What does it mean to trust God? And I would, I think the answer is, well, obey his word. Do what he commands you to do and leave the rest to God. You sow the seed, you water it, you plant it, and God makes it grow. Okay? And I think a strong argument can be made that when it comes to dealing with with quarantines and diseases, God's word gives us wisdom. Um, and there is nothing in scripture that says loving your neighbor means hiding in your house when you are not the one that's sick. That's not what it means. Loving your neighbor does not mean shutting yourself up and quarantining yourself when you're not the sick one. Quarantining the healthy is just not there. Um, and I just don't see an argument that can be made that, well, you know, things are so different. Again, things are so different now, or God's law is no longer applicable. I think that does an injustice to God. He's given us his word. It's applicable for ages, you know, throughout all of human history, and it's still applicable today. And the question is, are we going to obey it or not? And I do think that God provides that healthy balance between freedom of assembly and loving your neighbor and keeping people safe. Um, and sadly, I think we've gone a bit too far. And maybe, you know, maybe I'll get in a bit of trouble for saying it, but, but I think um, I'm on solid ground 
and quoting Jesus's words about being anxious and worrying. Um, and maybe someone might challenge me about that. That's fine. But, but I do believe that's, that, that I'd rather stand with Christ and, uh, and God's word when it comes to how to, how to deal with risk making risk and decision making when it comes to risks um, and living in a world that's full of infectious diseases. So, um, so with that, um, I hope this has been useful to you. I kind of want to end, end um, this season with a lot of scripture and a, and a good discussion. So I look forward to many comments, many questions, many discussions. I hope that you will, you know, contact me, uh, contact Dylan and I, email us at twoguysinabible.podcast at gmail.com or go to twoguysinabible.org and you can submit your questions there. Um, or you can find us on Facebook. Um, I check that pretty regularly and I hope that uh, you will, um, you'll, you'll respond and give me some feedback. Um, this needs to be a conversation, but it needs to be one where we don't accuse each other of, of, of killing, you know, killing grandma or being um, too risky or not loving our neighbor. Because at the end of the day, God is the one who decides what loving your neighbor looks like. So with that, I hope that uh, um, you have a wonderful day and uh, take care and God bless. Thank you.